The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 24th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll discuss the United States women's national soccer team's 2-1 win over Spain in the knockout round of the Women's World Cup, as well as some other Women's World Cup happenings. We'll also be joined by former New Orleans Hornet, Indiana Pacer, and Golden State Warrior David West to talk about Zion Williamson, the NBA draft, and the historical basketball league, a startup that's offering amateur players a new route to professionalism. Finally, we'll discuss the proposal to have the Tampa Bay Rays play half the season in Montreal. Is it dumb, crazy, dumb and crazy, or none of the above? Stay tuned. Joining me now from Reims, France, where he just watched the U.S. women win, is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Bonjour, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Uh, My French is bad. Your French is bad. Let's Let's not speak any more French. (laughs) (laughs) It's a deal. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. All right, Stefan, from my American Fox Sports vantage, this was not the best game that the U.S. played. They scored fewer goals. They didn't score 13 this time. Um, what was your vantage from the stands as the U.S. beat Spain uh, and moved on to the quarterfinals? It was uh, pretty nerve-wracking from the seventh row. Um, good seats, nice small stadium in Ross, about 20-plus thousand seats. It was, A, extremely hot, um, and that clearly showed, if it didn't show on Fox Sports, it certainly showed in the stands. I needed to be subbed out around the 60th minute, but Jill Ellis didn't sub me out, or for that matter, she didn't sub anybody else out, which was crazy. I mean, we were watching it. I was sitting next to my daughter, and I was kind of apoplectic. I mean, Lindsey Horan is arguably the best midfielder in the world. She had was on a yellow card, which was probably why she didn't start the game. But Alex Morgan was clearly hurt, and she was getting hacked constantly by Spain. And nothing happened until the 85th minute. Jill Ellis allegedly has two World Cup teams, according to Ali Krieger, um, and chose not to deploy any of her resources until very, very late in the game. It was really mystifying. Yeah, and it seems like that could hurt them in the quarters against France, especially since that game is on Friday. It's a really quick turnaround. So that was confusing. I'm curious about what the sense was in the stadium and in the stands. Obviously, the game turned on two penalty decisions, both slotted home by Megan Rapinoe. Very long delay on the second one for VAR. I would have to imagine that would be kind of mystifying and frustrating in the stands, not knowing what's going on. We had no idea. No no uh, replays were shown in the stadium here. So, you know, you know at this point that there's going to be a VAR review on pretty much everything. I mean, that seems to be the takeaway from this World Cup. And for better or worse, and I would probably argue for worse, I mean, it's a momentum killer in the stands. It really is sort of like in the NFL, like going to a commercial. I mean, it, and, and you're not used to going to a two-minute delay in a football match. So it was... You know, it, it was not clear. I mean, you had no idea how soft the foul was. I didn't know until I started looking at Twitter after the game that everyone was saying both fouls were kind of soft. But they were awarded, um, so one has to assume that they were penalties. I haven't seen the re- replays of either of them at this point. But Spain was physical all game. I mean, they committed 18 fouls. I think the U.S. only committed four. Um, they seemed to have a really smart strategy, which was play aggressively, hack Alex Morgan, who had nothing going on and press high 
on a suspect U.S. defense, and that forced the first goal. Um, when we were walking out of the stadium, a couple of French people actually said, no penalty, no win. <laughs> and, and, you know, true, but they were penalties. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny how when uh, the penalty advantages your side, then you say, ah, I guess it was a penalty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they were soft. They were actually called penalties on the field, so it wasn't VAR foolishness right. and changing something, um, re-refereeing the game, as they've been calling it. That's how it was refereed on the field. It was, you know, when the U.S. had the really bad giveaway in the beginning of the game on that uh, exchange between Alyssa Nair and Becky Sauerbrunn, Spain, you know, ties the game at one. At that point, the U.S. is generating a bunch of chances. I was thinking the U.S. is going to win four to one or five right. to one, and that kind of evaporated towards the end of the game, maybe because, you know, the the U.S. wilted in the heat, maybe because there, there was some talk about not being able to deal with the high line of the Spanish defense. But it just seemed like the goals that felt inevitable in the beginning just never materialized. Sometimes that happens in, in the World Cup, but it was a little bit disappointing to watch. In the stands, it didn't feel super inevitable after Spain scored. The U.S. did not look to me to be super dominant. And and that's kind of fitting a pattern in this World Cup. I don't think I watched the France-Brazil game on Sunday night in a park in Paris, which was packed. I mean, there were several thousand fans there, French people there. Um, France did not look dominant. England did not look particularly good against Cameroon, even though they won 3 nothing in their knockout round game. Germany has not looked super dominant so far. And those are the top four teams. And that either says that, you know, congratulations to your 2023 World Cup champion, Spain, which is my prediction right now, um, or that these teams are just not in gear yet. Um, but nobody has looked overwhelmingly powerful. And I think you can throw out the U.S.'s performances against Thailand and Chile as we've diminished them already. Well, I would push back on that a little bit. I think the U.S. looked good and very much in control against Sweden, which is a better team than Thailand and Chile. And then I think in the first 20 minutes of this game uh, on, on Monday, they were knocking in crosses. It seemed like they were just a couple you know, inches away at times from you know, getting the second goal, maybe getting the third goal, and it just wasn't there. And it felt like they really slowed down towards the end of the game. And it felt like that was the 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 reason why Ellis really made a mistake and not getting Mallory Pugh in, not getting Kristen Press in, not getting Lindsay Horan in. Not getting Carly Lloyd in, not getting Tierna Davidson in, not getting somebody on defense in. It was really confusing. I don't think that Crystal Dunn played exceptionally well on defense. Uh, Don Kemper and Sauerbrunn had that miscue very early, and I think they were tentative. Alyssa Nair was, it was kind of weird. There were a lot of, you know, errant balls going back toward her. A lot of, um, you know, it felt like a lot of times that she was taking way too long to distribute the ball and a lot of sort of weak distribution out of the back. And maybe that's how Jill Ellis has coached her. I read that, that that's what she wanted. She wants weak distribution out of the back? She wants her to play it out of the back and she just distributed it weakly out of the back. She was also like heading the ball and chesting the ball when it seemed unnecessary. Nair just is, it's very nerve wracking watching her play goalkeeper in this World Cup. Yeah. So, I mean, now what? Now France doesn't look super strong. The U.S. doesn't look super strong. I mean, it's still criminal that FIFA isn't smart enough to, how to, to know how to figure out how a bracket works and to put your top four teams in four separate quadrants um, when you reach the round of eight. So you're going to lose France to the United States, which is terrible for the tournament itself. I um, mean, it's terrible, obviously, for one of those two countries. But on the other hand... Hey, maybe they don't even deserve to make it to the semifinals, one of these teams. Should be really interesting. And obviously, there's some correlation in the fact that the U.S. looked its worst when it was playing its toughest opponent. Spain struck me, I don't know if it struck you at, at field level, as being very skilled, but kind of slow. Like, they, mm -hmm. they were not beating the U.S. for pace ever. And they only no. had that one shot on target, which was the one in the horrible giveaway in the beginning of the, the game. So it was this kind of intermediate challenge where you had to play against a team that could 
have possession at, at times, could control the ball, but just were not like that much of a threat to really, um, you know, beat the U.S. athletically. And with France, the challenge ratchets up where they have players that are more skilled than Spain's players. And if, you know, in the game against Brazil, um, Diani in particular was just amazingly fast. I hadn't seen her play much at all, but seemed like a huge threat to really break down the U.S. defense. And this is, you know, in, in the short term, yes, exactly. Now this will be the first real test. In the long term, Real Madrid doesn't even feel the women's team yet. I mean, Spain has come so far so quickly. This is a team that four years ago had the sexist coach that basically was drummed out by the players. And since then, and Jury Longman did a really nice piece in The Times about the rise of women's soccer in Spain. I mean, since then... Sponsorships are growing. Television is growing. They're encouraging fans to go by basically giving away tickets. They had 60,000 people show up for a Spanish women's league game earlier this year. I mean, really, if this is the kind of challenge that the U.S. is already facing, it is going to get more and more difficult for them to sustain anything in terms of being a you know favorite coming into this tournament. So one of the biggest stories at the Women's World Cup the last couple of days, Stefan, has been during the game and the aftermath of the England-Cameroon match, particular with England coach and some of the press calling out the Cameroon players for their behavior on the field, their complaints about the refereeing decisions in particular was pretty surprising to me to hear some of this, you know, language around the players being disgraceful and, you know, talking like that about an opponent was very odd and also very striking. Well, they they were, if not disgraceful, I mean, they did not comport themselves particularly well. I mean, there was an elbow. Someone may have spat on an English player. There was an incredibly hard foul, studs up. In stoppage time, the Cameroonian players complained twice about VAR calls, understandably disappointed about them, but to the point that they appeared to be debating whether to continue with the match. I mean, I think we can, on the one hand, criticize the way Cameroon comported themselves. On the other hand, you know, this is routine in men's soccer. And to start framing this as a referendum on its setting back women's soccer or it's a disgrace because girls are watching. I mean, Phil Neville, what did he say? My daughter wants to be a footballer, and if she watches that, she will think, no, I want to play netball. Well, I want to play netball too, Josh. I mean, what young English girl doesn't want to play netball, really? But if you're going to descend into this, it, you know, it also was clearly felt racial in its context that African teams don't know how to behave properly in this setting. And you know, if you're going to go there you better also recognize the kind of disadvantage that these women are playing under, um, how important this is to them, how rare the opportunity is to play on a world stage like this, and what it might have meant to the Cameroonian players. I mean, the Nigerian players, did you read this? That they, they basically staged a sit-in in their hotel rooms demanding back pay as far back as 2016 before they would leave the World Cup. The conditions in a lot of these countries are disgraceful. And that's not to excuse the way Cameroon behaved on the field. Yeah, you sent me a piece by Kim McCauley in SB Nation, Stefan, that really was good in capturing all of this context while not trying to make the argument that everything that Cameroonian players did on the pitch was great. And in the Men's World Cup, there are too often stories of federations not paying players, of federations not supporting players. You know, Cameroon didn't have any games in 2017. They had just one friendly in 2018. And so you have this convergence, right, where this is like the one time when they're on the world stage, they feel like they've they've been wronged. And then to be called out and said they're disgracing the sport with no acknowledgement for the conditions that they've played under, the fact that they haven't been able to to play at all in, in some cases just seems so like short-sighted and absurd. And colonialist, maybe? 
you know, again, this is England is a country that banned women from playing football for 50 years. Um, England is a country that has only in the last decade begun supporting women's football. Europe is a continent that only in the last decade has really, with a couple of exceptions, begun supporting women's football. And then to layer on top of that, the corruption that exists at these federations in Africa and South America and in many other parts of the world, you know, where do you lay a lot of the blame? On FIFA's doorstep. If they can't force these federations to behave ethically, well, good fucking luck, because FIFA can't behave ethically in Lausanne. So it, it just the conditions for these, these teams that come to the World Cup are appalling from the get-go. And then to place on top of that these expectations that somehow they're letting down the world of football because of their behavior seems pretty hypocritical to me. Get your mansion in order, FIFA. That's what that's what Stefan's saying. Before we get back to the U.S., I thought maybe we could talk about Marta's comments. So by acclamation, the greatest uh, women's player of all time, lost to France uh, playing for, for Brazil uh, over the weekend. Last World Cup match, uh, Marta said on the field after the game, talking about um, the next generation of Brazilian players that will come after her. It's wanting more. It's training more. It's taking care of yourself more. It's being ready to play 90 plus 30 minutes. This is what I ask of the girls. There's not going to be a Formiga forever. There's not going to be a Marta forever. There's not going to be a Cristiana. The women's game depends on you to survive. So think about that. Value it more. Cry in the beginning so you can smile in the end. This has been touted, I think rightly so, as being a moving and inspirational speech. But it was it was interesting to me, and I wonder if you noticed as well that by focusing so much on players, it takes away responsibility on federations. And in countries like Brazil, it seems like that's the bigger story is lack of institutional support rather than players not training hard enough or caring enough. Oh, 100%. I mean, I guess from Marta's perspective, her role as she sees it is a, to inspire players. And that may be her calling out Brazilian women, Brazilian players in their development system. But yeah, for her to be even more effective, I mean, her voice should, and I don't know that she's going to retire. She's 34. It's conceivable she could play in one more World Cup, Josh. But I mean, maybe that's what holds her back from criticizing the Federation. And I don't know whether how much she has called out the powers in Brazil, but they've been horrifically neglectful of one of the great women's soccer teams going back 20 years. I mean, they went through a period, too, of basic inactivity and total um, lack of funding this decade. So I don't know if we should call out Marta for not being more critical in the heat of the moment after the World Cup when the entire country is watching. And it's worth noting that millions of people in Brazil are watching because they put the games on free TV and it's been a huge success. I think Phil Neville would say that Marta just damaged the reputation of women's soccer forever. Everybody in Brazil, all those little girls, they're going to play netball too. So England and Brazil, their netball teams are going to be awesome. All right, let's end with a little bit, not a preview of the U.S.-France match on Friday, but just what's your sense being in the country, you went to the park to watch the France game. Do you think there's going to be just an enormous amount of buildup for this game? What's your take on just what the vibe is in the country now around this tournament? The vibe feels pretty Gallic, which means there's not a lot of vibe when you're walking around. <laughs> I mean, I see, I've seen more American fans on the streets than people wearing, you know, French women's national team jerseys. And that's obvious because, you know, they're tourists and they're wandering around the, you know, the, the Luxembourg gardens. Um, but it doesn't seem like it's sort of taking the country by storm, though, from what I can see, it is making the front pages of the sports newspapers, which is a good thing. And they're getting good television audiences also. Um, the game against the United States on Friday night is sold out. Um, many of the games here have not been. Today's game was not sold out, even though the stadium was fairly small. So I do think that, uh, as Megan Rapino said in the uh, mixed zone after the Spain game, I hope it's a total shit show circus. So yeah, it should be. All right, Stefan, enjoy the rest of your week. Start training your daughter in netball, and we'll talk to you next Monday. 
All right, Josh, have a great rest of the show. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Joining me now to take us the rest of the way is Joel Anderson. Joel is a Slate staff writer, the host of season three of Slate's podcast, Slow Burn. That season does not exist yet. So don't worry. You haven't missed it. (laughs) Don't worry, Joel. You haven't missed it. Welcome. Right. Thanks. You, you, you're actually taking me away from working on it right now to do this podcast. So I hope don't you don't say feel, that. Don't, don't say yeah. that. <laughs> I'm sure that the other half of your brain is busily working on it right now. That's right. <laughs> on Thursday night in Brooklyn, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver announced to no one's surprise that the New Orleans Pelicans were selecting Zion Williamson with the number one pick in the 2019 draft. In New Orleans, a whole bunch of people crowded downtown to celebrate the announcement. And I can attest that it was an impressive crowd because it was hot as hell on Thursday. I was there. Uh, It wasn't just Pelicans fans that were excited and that were emotional. The 18-year-old Williamson wept openly during an interview with ESPN's Maria Taylor, talking about all the sacrifices that his mom had made and the fact that he couldn't believe that this day would ever come. Joining us now is a man who knows what it feels like to be drafted in the first round by the New Orleans NBA franchise. In 2003, David West became the first ever draft pick of the New Orleans Hornets. West played 15 years in the NBA. He made two all-star teams and won NBA titles with the Golden State Warriors in 2017 and 2018. He's now the COO of the Historical Basketball League, which is scheduled to launch in 2020 and bills itself as a professional college basketball league that will be free of academic and economic exploitation. David West, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, David, you were drafted 18th overall after four years at Xavier. What do you remember about that day and about that moment? Hmm. It was one of the, uh, obviously, one of the most fulfilling days or couple days of my life because uh, for someone like myself, there was a process. So you dream about playing in the NBA, but then you have to make that dream a reality or a possibility first. So the dream became a possibility while I was in college. I really didn't know I could be an NBA player until after my sophomore year of college. And then it became a reality, you know, once I got drafted. It was a great experience for me going into New Orleans. I really enjoyed my time here. Spent the bulk of my career in New Orleans. What did you know about New Orleans and the Hornets franchise at the time that they drafted you? I knew a little bit about the Hornets franchise because I was actually living in North Carolina while they were there, uh, in North Carolina when they left. So it was kind of ironic to be their first draft pick down in New Orleans. But I was also familiar with New Orleans. I had traveled down there as a child to play basketball. So I had been to New Orleans. I knew the type of community that I was going into. Uh, obviously rich with culture and great tasted food. <laughs> right. So Zion had no choice about where he was going to go and play. And there was some talk, which seems like it was just talk about, oh, maybe he'll sit out and not go to New Orleans. But there is this kind of like fundamental strangeness about being somebody like you are, who's at the top of his profession, but you have no choice about where you're going to go. And even if you are excited about going to a place, it's still a little bit weird. Was that something that you were kind of thinking about at the time? Or is that something that players who are coming into the league are thinking about? Or are you just so excited to be in the NBA that it's not top of mind? Yeah, I'm not sure you think about that while you're going through it. From a personal experience, I felt like I should have gone higher. So mm-hmm. I was looking at the teams that were in the range that I knew I was going to get drafted. I remember that night just being like, God, you know, just go to New Orleans because I was like, that's the best possible answer. Because if I get beyond New Orleans, chances are I'm going to end up in Utah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. 
Right. It's interesting, right? Because, yeah, obviously there's sort of a hierarchy and it differs by player to player which cities are good to play in and which cities might not be. And you've seen sort of what happened with Anthony Davis, right? Like he got his way out of there and moved to L.A. You've been around the league now at this point. You played in New Orleans. Were you surprised to see Anthony sort of talk his way out of there or not want to Can you understand like why a guy might be like, eh? I don't think this is the place I want to be, or were you sort of surprised to see that unfold? No, I mean, it, I don't think it has anything to do with the city. I think it's more organizational. Yeah. And then, I mean, to be honest with you, man, in the NBA, everybody knows you got like three to five year windows. And for NBA teams, you know, if you think about the cycle, you want to have, you know, maybe a year or two where you're rebuilding, be able to make some legit playoff runs in a season or two seasons or three seasons. But literally, when you get to the point where you're year five, year six, and you haven't sort of made those incremental steps and are on the doorstep, it's usually time for a change, both internally with the team and usually player personnel. So I think he just fell into the mix of what it's, what it's like to be in, in the NBA, being with a franchise that I, I don't know how many times they made the playoffs, maybe once or twice while he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he just felt like, Um, you know, his opportunity to keep winning was elsewhere. So in the back half of your career, you played in Indiana, you played uh, in San Antonio, and then you ended up in Golden State. And by virtue of your tenure in the league and your stature in the league, you had the ability to pick where you were going to go, the opposite of how you broke in. Do you feel like that's something that you need to earn as a player, the ability to make that choice and that the way that it's done, not just in the NBA, but in other leagues, that that's appropriate? Or do you feel like guys, whether it's Zion or somebody else coming in to the league, never having played before, that they should have that ability to choose as well? I just don't know. I don't know if you can. So what you're saying is so no draft. And basically, then how do we know who's who? So Zion, for instance, he would say, I want to go to the Warriors. But then how would he be compensated? Would the teams who would traditionally have the top five picks, let's say, be able to pay him more money? Well, I think one way that it could work is that you would still have the salary cap in place. And so teams would then have to make a choice, just like you'd try to you know, have cap room to sign a free agent. You would try to have cap room to sign a rookie. And maybe there could be a rookie scale as well. But that would allow there to be kind of like a matching process where if a player and a team were interested in each other, they could potentially work it out. But it's not like the Warriors or the Lakers or whoever could get all the players because there would still be the salary cap in place. Like, does something like that seem workable or does that not seem workable? In theory, I think it sounds okay, but I don't know if it would be workable simply because, so for instance, say a guy like Zion Williams, if Zion Williamson had a choice, Zion would probably go to New York and play for whatever scraps or pennies because there's there's a minimum salary for rookies, but Zion is going to sign a $100 million or $150 million shoe deal with Nike. Yeah. So, you know, if he didn't like the cities that could pay him 3 or $4 million a year as a salaried NBA player, what's to stop him from just going to the best team in the league um, and just living off of his endorsement money? Because he's going to get that. And that would supplement him, I think, enough to play for like the Lakers right now or the Warriors or uh, uh, the Toronto Raptors for, you know, 250,000 a year, but he's making 10 or 12 million a year from Nike. Um, I just don't know of how they would be able to maintain the, uh, I mean, there's very little balance, but at least the way that things go now, I do think there should be a direct, there should be a lottery penalty, meaning that if teams are in the lottery or in the top 10, for over the course of two straight years or three straight years, and they don't have an opportunity to be in there after that. You know, I just feel like there's got to be some switch because there are a lot of teams that have been in this lottery process for a very, very long time. But I just don't know how you would distribute the talent in the draft knowing what type of money these guys can make from endorsements. I think a lot of them, particularly the, the cream of the crop, would just make the decision to go uh, you know, to the biggest, best markets. Don't you think, and I mean, you're, you're a guy, you wanted to play, right? So, like, you could, you know, Zion could go to Golden State, maybe the Raptors, but wouldn't a guy like that, a competitive guy like that also, I mean, only five guys can play at a time, right? So you don't think that, like, oh, well, maybe Dallas, like, would be a good fit because it's a, a place where city. he could be the face of the franchise, right? right? Well, I mean, I, I get it. 
I think there would be instances where you might have a kid that says, okay, I'm not going there. But I just think that the lure of going to play in Miami, going to play in New York with the Knicks or Brooklyn, L.A., Chicago, the bigger markets are going to win out. So talking about a different model, LaMelo Ball just announced that he's going to go play in Australia as opposed to staying in the U.S. and that he'll go into next year's draft. There's a guy, Darius Basley, who skipped college and was an intern at New Balance and is going to be going into the NBA this year. David, you're part of this league, the HBL, that is going to be a professional college basketball league. Can you just talk a little bit about that model and how it'll work? So the HBL is a place where we want to become and house the top basketball talent. We want to create an environment where young athletes coming out of high school in particular have other options or have another has another choice. Right now, the players have the, the least amount of choices uh, for all the people involved in the business. Um, the players are made to believe that it's not a business. Um, the players are made to maintain an amateur status uh, while everyone else around them, coaches, coaching staffs, training staffs, administrators are professionals. And so what we want to do is give these uh, young people an option um, to start their professional careers at 18 once they graduate high school. Um, you know, give them a different approach and a different developmental tool um, as they work toward their dreams of becoming future NBA draft picks and professional basketball players. Uh, basketball is no longer a game. It's a trade. It's something that you can pass down intergenerationally. It's something that can afford you other opportunities and other levels of access into other aspects of life. So the game has to evolve because it's no longer a game. It's cultural exchange mechanism. Right now, it's the number one sport uh, in China globally. It's the second or third most popular sport on the planet. So what we see is basketball has evolved into something beyond just this idea of amateurism and, you know, young kid playing the way that they're playing a game because they want to or because it's fun and people attending games because it's fun. You know, that's no longer the case. And so we want to model uh, or at least give the kids an option here in the U.S. that resembles a better opportunity for them. Right now, like you said, uh, there's been three or four kids. Basically, the one kid that just sat out. Um, but LaMelo, uh, R.J. Hampton and then Kenny Martin Jr. have all decided to go play in either Australia or New Zealand before they transition into the NBA draft process. We don't think that it's necessary for kids to have to go four or 5,000 miles away. You know, there's a political context here uh, that we don't have to get into, but, you know, we're supposed to create as many opportunities or have more opportunities than anyone, but it seems like in basketball in particular, and at the collegiate level, we haven't created opportunities um, that mirror sort of the future or mirror um, or reflect where other nations have been for quite some time now. Don't you think in a way that seeing, you know, Kenyon Martin Jr. and LaMelo and RJ choose Australia, like it sort of would indicate that there's an opportunity for you guys there, right? Because the G League already is sort of offering an alternative at this time, like that's sort of unique, right? Like I think you can go straight from high school to the G League and they've created a model where like, you know, the top guys can make six figure salaries or whatever. But even then, guys have sort of decided to go elsewhere. Does that did that sort of indicate like this most recent run of prospects going to Australia indicate that there's some space for you guys right now in the HBO? Yeah, absolutely. We absolutely see the void there. And I think it's, you know, it's helping us prove our our case that we're needed. Um, if you think about where these guys are making decisions to go, those countries are great. But I don't think that young American basketball players should have to go that far to find the best opportunity for themselves. Um, as opposed to being forced into a system right now that's going to exploit them um, shamelessly for a year. Um, and that's, or, or two, or however long they stay. And so that's the choice that um, the kids are making and their families are making. You know, what's happened, uh, you know, honestly, is that because we're in the information age and there's so many different mediums um, for people to get information from, um, you know, the, the, the traditional system can't, control all of the narratives. It can't control all of the stories. And the parents um, um, are making these decisions. The parents are more aware. The parents know 
what they're committing their children to. I mean, even Wendell Carter's uh, Wendell Carter's mom was pretty outspoken about it during his recruitment, and he eventually went to Duke. But you know, they were very open about the fact that he was going to be only in school for one year, and that they knew that they were committing um, him to you know an exploitive system. Um, and I think many more parents are going to take that tone. It's just not something at this point, at this stage, where you have uh, league commissioners making twenty million a year. You've got every coach at the university making a million plus in salary in some cases you uh, you've got you know conferences that are signing billion dollar tv deals um these are the things that we know uh from our standpoint um validate you know our position that there's a market there there's opportunity there to compensate players all right so the idea at the HBL is you guys are projecting players will get between 50 and $150,000 per season based on their market value that they can pick which cities they go to that they also get a five-year guaranteed scholarship and that they'll be going to colleges while playing in this professional league. And it's an interesting model. It's an interesting idea. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned Wendell Carter and Duke. Zion Williamson went to Duke as well. Obviously, I believe that the NCA system is is rotten and exploitative, but also that Duke kind of helped Zion get more famous. It helped him boost his following on, on social media and everything else. How do you feel like your pitch will work on players who can see that a place like Duke can help them get more famous and build their brands? I'll say this. Zion had more social media hits his senior year in high school than the entire Duke men's basketball team the year before. (laughs) He went to Duke, I believe, with a million plus social media followers. And obviously, the attention that these young athletes get at these universities, it's sort of the way that they're revved up. Is because that, right, the media companies are working with in, uh, in concert with the, the, the school systems and with the traditional model. So it's it's set up and its intent is to drive players' visibility, take it up a notch, but it's intentionally contained. So what I mean by that is if you're familiar with overtime, so overtime is working on becoming a high school major network. Mm-hmm. And what they're going to do is basically, you know, highlight and continue to bring um, um, eyes and ears to um, high school athletes. And so with a mechanism like that in place, unless they're limited, the sky's going to be wide open for these players and the people that want to see them. Very few people, particularly these, these younger generations of, of, of athletes and people, um, don't sit down and watch you know, games on TV and aren't watching, um, you know, that Saturday afternoon game in their house or that, you know, those those days are over with. Um, people want to see things on their phones. People want to see things in, from a digital standpoint. So I just feel that there are other mediums now that will bring more awareness and more notoriety to these young athletes. The other part that we haven't talked about is, you know, there's a socioeconomic opportunity for families um, that they're currently locked out of. Very few players, like less than 2% of these college athletes go on to play at the professional level. So for the most part, you're committing kids to three or four years of straight exploitation. Well, let me ask you this then, because I mean, I I think we all agree, right? But I mean, it's largely black players that are being excluded out of the, you know these opportunities to sort of, I mean, for lack of a better term, cash in uh, at mm-hmm. a time that they should be able to, right? But Let's go back to like 1998, uh, in 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 North Carolina, and mm-hmm. and and talk about David West, um, you know, making a decision. If you had had the opportunity, would you have picked HBL over Xavier? So my situation, absolutely, and I'm gonna tell you why. Mm-hmm. Because I was supposed to graduate high school in 1998, but I was not eligible, so mm-hmm. I flunked out. I flunked English mm-hmm. as a high school senior. To redo my senior year at military school in 1999. Huh. And so I wasn't el- so I was good enough to play at Virginia. And I it's, it's, it's crazy. At the beginning of this year, I was at um, the Hornets, uh, the Charlotte Hornets training camp. And the former UNC coach Dave Hanners came up, was there at practice, and we shared some words. And he said to me, he said, you know, Coach Smith really liked you when you were at Garmin. He said, oh. but you were not eligible, right? And I said, yeah, I was. There 
it was I, I had no chance of qualifying right out of high school. So the HBL would have been for me. It was either Prop Forty Eight, uh, go to junior college, uh, or flunk my senior year and redo my senior year at military school, and that's the one I chose. And so I, and I remember even as a young person then, I remember saying one day, waking up one day in October in military school, saying, "Yo, if you don't, if you mess around this year, you don't have a high school diploma." So. Yeah. It was a huge risk on my part and my family's part um, going that route. But for me, the HBL would have been a no-brainer because I would have been able to continue to play basketball. I would have been in an environment that wasn't uh, open to you know grown men with real life uh, 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 on their back like the, the G League. Um, and there was, a there was a developmental system in place. So I would have absolutely jumped into the into the HBL because I was a kid that was up of the upper crest in talent, but I had no grades. So I wasn't seen. David West went to Xavier four years, played in the NBA for 15. Now the COO of the historical basketball league, which is set to launch in 2020. David, thanks so much for the time. Thank you guys. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Before we get to our conversation about the Tampa Bay slash Montreal x-rays, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Joel is going to school us on what it's like to cover college sports, and I've been promised that he will name and shame America's worst college towns. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. The Tampa Bay Rays are one of the best teams in baseball. They have a 45-33 and 33 record, good enough to make the playoffs. Also, just as they did last year, the Rays have the lowest payroll in the game. They're spending about $63 million in player salaries this season. That's $11 million less than the second thriftiest team, the Orioles. And it's more than $160 million less than the Boston Red Sox, who the Rays are ahead of in the standings, incidentally. Uh, also, also, the Rays are second to last in the majors in attendance. They average 14,545 customers per game. That is not good. And as ESPN's Jeff Passan first reported last week, the Rays have received permission from MLB's powers that be to look into an odd solution to their problems. Uh, splitting the season between Tampa, the Tampa area, and Montreal, Ontario, Canada – the details of such a plan are unclear, perhaps because it's extremely unlikely to happen. But if nothing else, Joel, it's good fodder for a podcast segment. And we can't <laughs> thank uh, the Tampa Bay Rays enough for that. What do you make of this half the year in Tampa, half the year in Montreal idea? It just seems like it's the latest indication that the end of Major League Baseball in Tampa is upon us. Um I lived in Tampa, as I, if anybody knows me, I probably mention every few hours, um, for four years, and including one of the years in which they went to the World Series. Um, and this has always sort of been the, you know, the undercurrent around the baseball team, even in good times. And they're a good baseball team this year. Um, that it's like, oh, man, the stadium sucks. People won't come. What are we going to do? We need to get a new stadium. And so this just sort of seems like an out. It seems like, okay, they're they're really starting to look towards, you know, doing something to make up for the fact that they just can't build a real fan base there and they can't get a stadium built. And I mean, I guess it's like chicken or egg. Can they not bring fans because they don't have a stadium or if they build a stadium, will it bring fans? But um, it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to reach a resolution here because after a while, it just seems it seems like this is sort of an intractable um issue and they're like there to impasse and they just can't get past it and montreal is up there looking all beautiful and it's an <laughs> and you know it's they got great food and the weather is nice some of the year at least during baseball season and it just seems like huh, maybe 
maybe finally they're just going to go ahead and 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 make that move um, out of there. I mean, I, it, it's not that Montreal was always the natural plan B, but that that plan A was always to eventually get out of Tampa St. Pete. And I think that's just kind of where we're going to go with this. There are a couple of theories about what could be going on here. The more straightforward theory, which I think is also the least likely to be true, is like, <laughs> let's just find a creative solution here. Half the year in Tampa, yeah. and we could build a smaller stadium. And um, then we could add some revenue if we spend half the year in Montreal. They're hungry for a franchise because the Expos aren't there anymore. We could have two TV deals. So that's double <laughs> the money, double the fan base. We could have like cross-cultural exchange where people from Montreal could travel to St. Pete to see games and vice versa. So that's one idea. The other idea is like, somebody is just trying to extort a stadium deal <laughs> by doing this. Um, right. And this is a thing that happens all the time in, right. in all of the sports leagues, this idea that you get these other markets interested in your team and threaten to leave and do that to try to get um, something out of the city that you're actually in. Um, does that seem to you like it's the more, the more likely scenario? Yeah, that absolutely seems. I mean, I lived in Houston when the Oilers, you know, for years were like, well, maybe we'll move to Jacksonville. Well, maybe we'll, you know, we'll do this. And then eventually, you know, when a team starts doing all of that, um, I think it's really hard to come back from that because you can really, it can really be a turnoff to the fans that are there. I mean, there is a core of fans there in Tampa that really does support that, that franchise. But eventually, you know, that sort of stuff gets old. And, like, you come to believe that, well, what's the reason for investing in this franchise anyway, because they're going to leave anyway, or they're not committed to us. And like, how could you prove that they're committed to the fan, to building a fan base there, to building a, you know, to, 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 you know, establishing some sort of foundation there. If they're always trying to leave or, or think about it, well, they're not always trying to leave, but like, it just doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like they're necessarily committed to staying. And, and I mean, it, it, and some of this is on Tampa St. Pete, right? They don't want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a publicly financed stadium, which is fair, which is fair. More, more than fair, Joel. More right. than fair. Right. So, Yeah. I mean, the mayor of St. Pete, the stadiums in St. Pete has said, yeah, this isn't happening. <laughs> they have a lease uh, here. And there's he's said, like, I'm, we're not going to allow them to explore playing any games in Montreal before 2028. So maybe that's a negotiating ploy on his part as well. But this is not a thing that healthy franchises do. I mean, right. the Expos played 22 home games in Puerto Rico um, mm -hmm. when they were on the way out um, of Montreal. There is a precedent in the NBA. There were the Kansas City Omaha Kings in the 1970s. And that actually made more sense because – the idea there was let's make this a regional franchise. And you see that with, with you know, even the, the Saints. They play all their home games in New Orleans, but they try to market themselves as the Gulf Coast's football team. Um, and so the, the idea behind the Kansas City Omaha Kings was, you know, these cities are three hours apart. Let's split the schedule. Let's make this a regional franchise. That didn't work, but at least you can kind of understand the thinking behind it. Right. I mean, they don't even have direct flights between Tampa and Montreal. You know what I mean? So oh, it's but like, they yeah, would. They would. There'd be a whole they, airline that would yeah, right. exist <laughs> Dedicated, just, <yeah. laughs> just to serve the like hungry masses of fans that would want to be on that route. I mean, all it takes is, what, 200 people to fill up a plane at most? So, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, that that I mean that's a good start. Uh, that's a better start than what you have right now for your average game at uh, Tropicana Field anyway. So, maybe so. <laughs> 200. That would be a... Uh, you know, a statistically st significant increase in the uh, right. <laughs> in the fan base. Um, let's talk about it's less fun to just like crap all over this idea than to imagine it actually happening. The thing about it is that it imagines players as just like totally <laughs> like not like instrumental, like like you know Scott Boris, the agent was like no player would ever agree to this. Like nobody wants to move. In the, in the middle of the season. But can you imagine a version, let's just try to be fun and optimistic and generous, that would make sense and would be fun and everybody would be like, oh, this actually was 
a good idea. Like double the fans, double the, you know, d- double the geographic footprint. What could go wrong? Yeah. I mean, I kind I mean, it is kind of cool, right? Um, I mean, I've never been to Montreal, but I've heard great things about it. <laughs> the I Montreal mean, with, aspect is what's cool, not the like two city idea. Yeah, right. And I mean, like, would they get Canadian health insurance? Health insurance, like, would That's they a get, great point. You know what I mean? So, like, you know, maybe you have that in there. So now they now the Rays don't have to provide health insurance, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's saving the money on one side too. But yeah, I mean, I guess like. I can kind of see where that would be cool, but like, just imagine like any married baseball player and like, where do you send your kids? Um, where do you, you know, I, I don't know, man. I mean, I, well, like, look, it, you chose to play baseball. You obviously don't are, are not expecting like geographic security. Um, you know, you're also committing to, you know, leaving your kids somewhere for, for most of the year without you you seeing them. Should we really be uh, feel bad for these hypothetical Montreal-Tampa players not seeing their children? And that's a fair point because actually, I mean, they would have come up through the minor leagues anyway. And I mean, I'm certain that it, it, either of these cities or that arrangement is better than living in like Greenville, South Carolina or something. I uh, mean, it's your choice to play baseball yeah, right. and have children. Like, come on. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man. You got to get over it. I mean, they, they've got the money to take care of it, too. I mean, let's get real. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't think that like, I, I, like, I, like I said, I lived in Tampa for all that time. This is just something that is like, they've not been able to figure out. And like, like the, what, I mean, what are the odds that, okay, we can't get one stadium built in this one area, yes. but oh, we can get two built in two, in two different places. I just, for, you know, for, for a franchise that's shown that like, you know, that, I mean, they're, they're, they're questionable commitment to the area they're in. I don't know, man. That, that, that seems a little dubious to me. Yeah. It's a little bit like, all right, I'm learning to drive. I like can't <laughs> navigate the street in front of my house, but I'm definitely going to be able to figure out like driving on the interstate. Like right. <laughs> that's, that's going to be no problem. And right. doing the research on, on this, there's like some like weird history that I didn't know. Like, did you know that the Golden State Warriors were the Golden State Warriors, the, the reason that they're named that is because there was a plan that was never enacted that they would play in the Bay and in San Diego and that they oh. would thus be a, a regional what? team. It was like kiboshed before it could actually happen. But like that was a thing that was that was going to to be the plan. You know, that's it, you, it, wait, Josh, that's really interesting, because now that you think about it, every team that tries to sell itself is like a re- is the regional answer. Like, I feel like those teams are always just sort of like always on the verge of like having to move somewhere else. Right. Like, I don't know. Uh, I'm the just, New England I'm Patriots seem to be doing okay for themselves. They're fine. They're fine. I guess the Carolina Panthers are fine. Although they just, I mean, they just sold for however billions of dollars, but I mean, I guess I, I just, I don't know. It just seems like if you, if you have to pitch regionally, as opposed to like this local area, it seems like it's a little bit more of a, uh, difficult proposition but maybe i'm this is a confirmation bias right here because tampa and st pete isn't working out right now do you think it would make more sense in football um because Mm. you could play those like beautiful fall uh saturdays and sundays in uh buffalo or whatever i know buffalo is trying to make the buffalo toronto thing happen but maybe the the thing that should happen is like the buffalo um you know mexico city or something (laughs) See, see I, and I feel like, ba- see, this is actually why I think that the baseball thing has a chance of working because, I mean, seriously, I mean, how many, who has time to go to 81 games? You know what I mean? Like, you, you miss a few, like, who cares? But if you miss one of the eight, I mean, that's a big deal, you know? I mean, I'm, pay- I'm paying a season ticket package for five games, you know, I'm in a, a, and, and maybe I don't have, I spend all my money on good seats here in uh, Buffalo. I don't have the money to go all the way over into Toronto all the time. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, although I know that those are very close cities and I've made that drive before, but yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it's actually more realistic in baseball that it could happen. I just, I don't know. You know, the thing is, is that baseball is bad already anyway. I don't, I like, <laughs> I, I, like seriously. I mean, like I went to a game out in Oakland and Oakland, I mean, the A's are just playing in front of like, I mean, they've got college crowds. I mean, not even college crowds. They've got high school crowds out there right now. It, um, so like I, I'm I'm wondering if like the emphasis on like where the team is maybe is actually the wrong one because like it seems more and more that like baseball should just focus on TV like just build like 
thousand seat stadiums and like focus on the TV product since that's where all their money is anyway. Because the idea that like you know this concrete bones and guts of a, a franchise like that just seems that, that's a lot of overhead. So like maybe they should just be a virtual team and play for TV and try to get the TV money. <laughs> I mean, I think that's exactly like the opposite of what their strategy should be. But look, <laughs> whatever, whatever's going on right now isn't working for Tampa Bay. They should just, I do like the idea of making just like one super weird franchise. That's just like the, ex, <laughs> like clearly this is, isn't working. Let's just do some weird experiments. Yeah. Maybe that's the ideas instead of doing two cities, at least for this one franchise, just have it be no cities and just have them play, uh, you know, virtually. Uh, have them play in space, have them play in, uh, you know, London, you know, right. just a different experiment every week or, or every month. But I, I do like my Buffalo, Mexico City Bills idea. I, that, that actually is really interesting. I mean, and you probably couldn't find two more different cities on the face of this globe than that. Um, so wait, in 2028, we're starting Trump's, we're ending the uh, the third term of President Trump. Do you think that this is actually going to happen? Like, what do you think is actually going to happen? I think that they'll probably just move to Montreal. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I think or so they'll move to Nashville or someplace that isn't Tampa, St. Pete. I mean, it's not going to work there. There's enough evidence to, to make that prediction, I think. They're, they've won and they're winning and, it's, and people still won't go. Yeah. QED. Yeah. All right. Now it is time for after balls and let's honor... Your Tampa Bay Rays, Joel. I was looking on the uh, Tropicana Field Wikipedia page, as one does, and mm. I think the thing that we need to call out here is the Rays Touch Tank, the oh. 35-foot, 10,000-gallon tank that's filled with three different species of rays, including uh-huh. cow nose rays that were taken from Tampa Bay waters. Can you imagine you're just like a cow nose ray? You're swimming <laughs> around in, in Tampa Bay waters, and not only do you have to go in this like indoor tank. Well, maybe it's actually better that there aren't like that many people in the stadium to bother you. Right, like, at least it's right. not that loud in there. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be fine. I didn't realize, is this a new tank? Is that is this a, a new development or an old, like something that has always been there? So there's a, <laughs> there's a table in the Wikipedia page of touch tank home runs. Oh my God. So Luis Gonzalez hit one in 2007. So now can oh. you imagine being a cow nose ray? Not only <laughs> are you taken from Tampa Bay waters, you're being assaulted by baseballs by Luis right. Gonzalez. <laughs> All right. But, that, you know, at least you're getting a shout out on the Hang Up and Listen podcast. Joel, what is your cow nose ray? Yeah, my cow nose ray is. Uh, so last night on Twitter, which is obviously where everything worth keeping tabs on these days happens. Um, the University of Connecticut football account tweeted out this post with four pictures of the brand new Fraser family locker room. And the tweet read, quote, welcome to our new home, hashtag raise the bar, end quote. And there was this emoji right in the middle with hard eyes, which I will liberally take to mean love at first sight. It's a beautiful locker room. And like, theoretically, this should be a triumphant moment for a football program that really hasn't had many of them. I mean, I guess like its most notable accomplishment is, you know, maybe beating South Carolina in the Papa John dot com bowl in 2009. <laughs> or, I mean, they went six zero and two in 1924. And the New York Times at that time said they were one of the best teams in the nation. So that has to count more something. So that, that was a highlight as well. But it, anyway, the, the locker room was like the culmination of this million dollar donation from alum Chris Fraser. Uh, he's a 1980 graduate of UConn who most recently served as the CEO of KMG Chemicals. And his $1 million donation was one of 20 made to UConn Athletics with the hope that, according to the UConn blog, uh, open quote, it will help the Huskies football program get back on track, end quote. And that is true if the UConn blog meant the FCS or independent status. Because only a day earlier, like, so the day before this tweet, uh, UConn announced that it would be leaving the American Athletic Conference for its old league, the Big East. The only problem is that the Big East doesn't have Division One football. So UConn has these spiffy new lockers and no real home for its football team, which seems sort of a bass awkward way of doing things at the program that Randy Edsel built. So what to do? My dude, Matt Brown at SB Nation, called this a few months ago, noting that UConn's athletic program is facing this $40 million budget deficit, which is un- like there's some programs that don't even have a $40 million budget, let alone uh, have enough to have a $40 million budget deficit. But UConn has this. 
And it's always been like this really bad fit in the AAC, which is basically just this mishmash of programs that really have nothing in common but the desire to fill a Division One football program. So for those of you that know, if you're if you're listening to sports, if you like sports, I mean, I guess you would know that UConn is a basketball school. It has probably the most famous and accomplished program in all of women's college basketball and a men's program that's won three national titles in the past 20 years. So, like, today's Huskies fans really never got all that amped about trading Big East rivals like Georgetown and Providence for Tulane and East Carolina. In this sense, UConn going back to its hoops and its hoop roots makes a lot of sense. Like, they're getting out of the football rat race, and, like, the students and alums have already gotten out of it because, like, the Huskies were averaging about 10,000 fans a year at their football games this past year. The problem is that... So UConn, they have nowhere to go. They've got these brand new lockers. I mean, they're a bad football team. They've won seven games in the past three years, including a 1-11 finish last year. And it's like, where are they going to go? Well, it doesn't really make a difference because they've got this really nice locker room. And so raising the bar, I don't know. I mean, maybe so, but that means if it's the best locker room in the FCS, I guess. I love how you just don't want these really nice lockers to go to waste. What about the Tampa Bay Yukon Rays? Oh my God. That would be a really nice. Hey, have you seen these lockers? I'm sure those baseball players would love that. I think they have like a PlayStation in there. So, <laughs> yeah, why not? Problem solved. All right, Josh. So, what is your Kaunas Ray? So, unintentionally, I have also selected a Yukon related oh. afterball. Um, what are the chances? So I was doing a little bit of background reading on the Kansas City Omaha Kings, the NBA franchise that would later become the Sacramento Kings, but were briefly uh, the Midwest favorite NBA uh, team in the 1970s. I saw this team photo from 1972-73, and in the back, there is the rarest commodity in the NBA, the rarest player type, a bald white guy with a mustache. <laughs> And that guy, I looked him up. His name was Toby Kimball. He went to UConn in the 1960s. He uh, averaged 18 and 17 boards a game, led the nation in rebounds in 1964-1965. His college teammate, Tom Penders, who uh, you must must know, Joel. Yes. uh, Basketball coach, best known for his perm. (laughs) Tom Penders told the Hartford Current in 2017, we all called him grandpa when we were freshmen. Uh, You could throw it anywhere in the area and he'd go get it. I'm not sure how those two ideas are connected. Um, (laughs) But in photos from his college days, uh, Toby Kimball does not have very much hair. So I get the nickname, at least. Uh, Kimball died of a lung disease in 2017. His obituaries mention an interesting fact about him. According to the Hartford Current, he was one of the first and possibly the first professional athlete to file a cumulative injury workers' comp claim, Hmm. successfully arguing that years in the NBA had brought on long-term knee injuries. He described the toll of those injuries in a 1977 Boston Globe column. It was written by Lee Monfil. That column includes the following passage. Toby Kimball can't run anymore. In fact, he also isn't the world's greatest walker. I'm disabled from playing professional sports, he said. Look at this. Look at it this way. I never could be a milkman, a postman, a lot of things. Sports, the only thing I can play is a slow set of tennis doubles. I go out there and I just hang by the net, and I'm always making sure that someone in the foursome is a doctor. No. Kimball hurt his knee during his rookie year with the Celtics. It was right at the garden, he said. Nothing spectacular. I just came down wrong. I was put in a body cast, and then I came back and played. The knee was never right again. Monfell wrote that Kimball got to taking four or five different painkillers. He took them every day. The thing is, you never want the team to know, he said. They say report all injuries. Well, that's fine. But what happens if you report all injuries? You report too many and they say, see you later. The New Orleans Jazz did say, see you later, releasing him as a, quote, able-bodied player when his knee finally gave way for good. Kimball won an insurance case against the Jazz, allowing him to receive disability benefits. And he also filed that workman's comp claim. He won $7,997.50, a bill that was divided between five NBA teams. According to Lee Monfil, Kimball quit taking painkillers after he was cut by the Jazz. The great Bob Ryan wrote in 2001 that Kimball, however follically challenged he may have been, was one of the great rebounds in college history and one of the nicest guys ever to play in the NBA. 
Remember Toby Kimball, Joel. Remember Toby Oh, Kimball. man. That's really sad. You know, you kind of just had all these brushes with greatness, man. Did you, did you know, by the way, that Bill Belichick uh, applied for their head coaching job in 1983 and didn't get a call back? So <laughs> their locker rooms would probably be nicer if that. Had yeah, happened. I, I would imagine. Or they would have been hey. nicer sooner. <laughs> right, right. Although Tom Jackson had a winning record, the coach who that actually got the job. He went 62 and 57 over that stretch, which is much better than Bill Belichick went for the, at the Browns right after. So it worked out in however the way it was supposed to work out, I guess. All right. If you choose to believe that. <laughs> that is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hangup. In our bonus segment this week, I will interrogate Joel about what it's like to travel the nation covering college sports. The part of it that sucks is that these places are like out of the way for the most part. They're not easy to get to. They're in really remote parts of the country. They don't have the nicest hotels uh, normally. (laughs) And so that makes it sort of difficult. But just the idea of being there, even on the occasions where I just went to a town and there wasn't a game going on, but you could walk around the stadium or walk around town like that was just sort of surreal to me. Hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. For Stefan Fatsis and Joel Anderson, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.